You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 14th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. This is about perceived injustice and a state functions to the degree that its citizens give it consent to function. As Catalan independence leaders are jailed by Madrid, we'll ask where next for the region's secessionist movement. My guests Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion will discuss that and the day's other news, including diplomatic immunity, why a continuing spat between the UK and US involving a tragic road death is showing up the age-old concept. We'll also be celebrating the first sub two-hour marathon run. And in an increasingly tap-and-go era, the presence of cash in its hoary, paper-thin form is still a good way to send a soft power message, it seems. Looking at the design details of the UK's new £20 note. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times. We're going to start in Spain, or as certain protagonists of this story might prefer it, Catalonia. Nine of the Catalan leaders who helped stage an unofficial referendum on Catalan independence in 2017 have received lengthy prison sentences between nine and 13 years. Not among them was the Catalan leader of the time, Carles Puigdemont, currently in self-imposed exile. The the longest of the sentences was handed down to his former vice president, Oriol Junqueras. It could have been worse. All were acquitted of the more serious charge of rebellion. Um, basic first question, is this possibly a bit much? Yes and no. I mean, it's an overreaction in the sense that, uh, by all standards, this is not something that is a criminal offence that merits that length of time. I mean, it was, as you say, an exercise in democratic consultation, even if it wasn't sanctioned by uh, national level. On the other hand, it is technically, within the Constitution, a rebellion against the state, and that is a serious offence. That is tantamount to treason. And so states always have a high sentencing uh, policy, I mean, a, a high level of uh, culpability uh, for people engaged in, in rebellion or an attempt to overthrow the state uh, or to undermine it. Uh, it doesn't mean that they will actually serve that time. I think that's most unlikely. And there certainly will be uh, demonstrations and protests. And uh, I think that it will have to be modified somehow. But on the face of it, uh, it's it's a lot. But, but for what it technically covers, it's probably... Probably what other states would do as well. Well, on the subject, um, Isabel, of the protests and demonstrations, is there, a, without even necessarily getting into the rights and wrongs of these sentences, from the perspective of the Spanish state, is there now a risk that these sentences actually reinvigorate the cause that they were seeking to quash? Which it strikes me, at least, that the air had rather gone out of uh, since the referendum. Well, I think there's a high risk. And I think it's, a, um, I mean, you know, you're looking at a country which, uh, on the other side of, of, of the country, fought an armed insurrection for many years. It was, with this the was against the ETA and yes, the Basques. Yes, and ETA. And, and, you know, the, this is about perceived injustice and, and a state functions to the degree that its citizens give it consent to function. And I think that the danger here is that, that you know, the, the, the Catalans have never been 
violent, at least in modern times, they've never been violent. Um, they've been given the same sentences as, uh, do you remember Lieutenant Tejero, who uh, entered the Spanish Parliament waving a gun as part of a, an attempted military coup back in the you know early days of the transition, got a very similar sentence. You know, if you kill someone with your car in Spain, you get you get four years. You know, this mm. is the same sentence as a murder sentence and a premeditated murder sentence. And and I I very much doubt that this will be seen in Catalonia as just. Um, and the state gives them very few options, frankly, for the exercise of you know a dissenting view of what of how the Spanish state should be constructed. Um, Michael, history does not lack uh, for examples of revolutionaries or secessionists or rebels of one kind or another who at the time uh, may have seemed somewhat buffoonish but were elevated to the status of martyrs or near martyrs by overreaction against them. One thinks, I guess, in the context of, of British and Irish history, most obviously of the Easter rebels of 1916 who were far from popular shortly after the rebellion uh, but became much more so when the British shot the leaders of the of the revolt. I mean, is that dynamic escapable if you are a state trying to keep your state together? Well, uh, I very much agree with Isabel, actually, that uh, if you look at uh, the reaction of the citizens uh, and say, well, the state governs by consent and with the approval of its people, then uh, it is pretty monstrous to do something that is uh, clearly going to antagonize all the people and shooting the leaders of the rebellion in Ireland clearly antagonized uh, everyone. They, uh, long prison sentences would have been uh, resented but understood probably by the Irish uh, nationalists. Uh, executing them is a different matter. And it is, yeah, it's, it's a very tricky one because at the time the British thought wrongly that they should take a tough line to discourage further uh, insurrection. They've done this before, and it's last, left a lasting stain. I particularly remember, because I was there only three weeks ago, in Amritsar. Mm. A hundred years ago, the British massacred more than 400 people, innocent civilians, demonstrating for political independence from the British. And that massacre, the stain of that, has bedeviled Anglo-Indian relations ever since, because of the massive overreaction of the authorities. I mean, Isabel, is there a smart way or a smarter way for Madrid to handle this? Because whether you agree with the Catalans' case or not, um, it's not going to go away. This, there, there is always going to be a plurality of Catalonians, or at least a, a large number of Catalonians, who do think they should be an independent country. And obviously Spain has ongoing concerns, not just with that, but with the Basque country uh, on the other side of the country as well. If, if, you are, if, you're, if you're Madrid, and obviously what you want to do is keep the country together. What is actually the smart way to address a, a secessionist movement? Well, I think the smart way to address it is to is to recognise that the shape of the uh, Spanish state and indeed this kind of the primacy of of having a unitary state um, derives from from Franco. It derives from harsher times. And if you're looking at, at you know the current um, looking at 21st century politics, particularly within the context of the European Union. 
Union. What you see is that the European Union gives uh, space to regionalisms of all kinds as as the function of the of the central government of a nation state is is eroded by being part of a larger entity is the thing that enabled after all the the um, peace agreement in in Ireland it wouldn't have happened without the European Union so I think what the Spanish state can do is to call if you like a constitutional conversation within Spain itself about whether you know Spain looking at the rest of the 21st century what what sort of shape it wants to be and how these regional identities can be better accommodated within a, a, a framework which is already complicated by being part of the European Union. But simply to say the primacy of, of, of a unitary state uh, is, you know, the, it trumps all other claims is to me a very short-sighted position because in the end it says, you know, the question, the democratic question, who does the state belong to? Does it belong to the crown? And the king came out very hardline on this. Or or, or does it belong to the citizens? And if it belongs to the citizens, which I think we should all acknowledge that Mm. it does, then you have to get a, a more constructive relationship between a legacy authority or a central authority and citizens in in a, a part of the polity and the, the Spanish state is not doing that right now it is taking as it were you know the Easter rising line that you have to crack down hard or or everyone will be at it there is another way to do it which is that you can have uh, a constitutional uh, discussion which takes the air out of the Catalan demands or gives you know some satisfaction to the to the to across a spectrum of Catalan demands which may well stop them um, wanting outright independence Michael isn't the trouble though that you're always going to end up even if you make a, an approach like that in trying to bring reason to bear on what is essentially an unreasonable argument because there is a reasonable argument you could make to the people of Catalonia which is that you are a you're the wealthiest part of a wealthy country you are a free and democratic people people this is all a bit self-indulgent um really it's it's this is akin i mean the the comparison that always leapt to my mind was with was the occasional flourishing of the uh, the secessionist movement in quebec seeking to free themselves from beneath the iron boot heel of canada uh, i mean it, it is a bit silly isn't it or isn't it but that's not a case you can yes make. i agree i mean the trouble is we're arguing not with reason but with emotion here mm. when it's emotion then it's almost impossible to convince people reason can get so far and in fact probably that was the main uh, reason in the end that uh, Quebec did not succeed because a lot of people thought about their pockets and how much money they might lose if they were independent and similarly in Scotland uh, there was uh, the referendum in Scotland which would look as though the nationalists were going to probably win it when it when it got going I mean it was pretty close until the uh, English or uh, the British or the government or whichever the unionist cause which was pushing for the uh, uh, unity of the United Kingdom, they made the point that you will lose millions and millions of pounds and you will not have any support for the uh, development that Scotland prides itself on uh, in the poorer parts of the country because there won't be money from Westminster. And in the end, a lot of people, enough, were, were, were swayed by that. But for the hardcore who felt that it's nothing to do with economics, it's to do with history and culture and uh, identity and previous uh, abuses, that wouldn't have made any difference at all. 
Just as a final thought on this one, Isabel, we've been talking mostly about what, I guess, other unitary states might learn from this about dealing with secessionist movements. Are there lessons in the apparent failure, thus far at least, of the Catalan secessionist movement for other secessionist movements? If you were if you were running a secessionist movement elsewhere in Europe, perhaps, is, are, are there lessons here that you could think of as things to do and things not to do? Well, I think you probably have to look at the counterfactual. If Madrid had said, fine, have a referendum, you know, who would have won? Um, it may well be that Madrid would have won, which would have resolved their problem rather better than now. Because if there's one thing we've learned here in the UK these last few years is they that really re- referendums things, yes. sort well, everything out forever. Well, it, would have, it would have been a better result than this. But in Scotland, if you remember, we've had a series of referendum of referenda on independence mm. and, in fact, initially on, on devolution. And when the first devolution referendum was lost, um, there was a very long, civil, peaceful campaign for a constitutional convention which resulted in the end in a in a, a devolved parliament. So there are ways of conducting these processes and, and allowing for change and consulting people seriously on what kind of change they want. Um, and I think that that's as true for secessionist movements as it is for, uh, for central governments. Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion. We'll be back with more from both of you in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Ben Ryland has some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Kurdish fighters say the Syrian regime has agreed to send its army to the northern border to try to halt Turkey's offensive against them. The assault, which is aimed at forcing Kurdish troops from the border area, has already prompted the United States to withdraw its troops from the region. Poland's governing Law and Justice Party has claimed victory in the country's general election. Partial results gave the Nationalists more than 45% of the vote, which increases the party's parliamentary majority. The centrist opposition alliance Civic Coalition won about a quarter of the vote. And today's Monocle Minute reports that seven new pet-friendly bus lines have been added to Taipei's transport roster to cater to the needs of the city's furry population. Taiwan has a huge number of domestic animals. It's thought that they will overtake the number of children by 2020. I'm Ben Ryland. That's some of what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Michael Binion and Isabel Hilton. And let's look now at the United Kingdom, where patience with the idea of diplomatic immunity is presently being tested by the case of Harry Dunn, a teenager killed in August in a road accident involving the wife of an American diplomat, Anne Sakoulas. Ms Sakoulas invoked diplomatic immunity to return to the US ahead of the clutches of British law. The Foreign Office insists that diplomatic immunity no longer applies in Ms Sakoulas case if indeed it ever did. Um, Michael, basically, what is the case for diplomatic immunity? It was never meant to cover uh, immunity from uh, civil, well, from crime, from uh, murder, from uh, stealing, from any sort of crime. But it was meant to cover uh, the protection. Uh, it was meant to ensure that diplomats and their families could not be held hostage by a hostile government. So that if you were there negotiating something when the two countries were at loggerheads, they couldn't seize your uh, son or your wife or somebody and say, well, we've got her, you know, we're going to level charges against her unless your country 
Seize reason, or whatever it is. That's that's the original Vienna Convention that mm. diplomats are the, and their immediate family are safe from being used as pawns and hostages. Now, this is a very different sort of case. This is, uh, if not criminal, then certainly um, it's a case of uh, responsibility needing to be determined. If this was an accident, uh, is the legal responsibility for the person who caused it? Uh, and normally. Countries allow diplomatic immunity to be waived in these cases. Even those that protect their diplomats quite firmly, such as uh, many of the Middle Eastern countries, where their uh, diplomats have been involved in car accidents or indeed in drug smuggling or something like that, they have occasionally, under pressure, uh, lifted immunity so that the person can face charges. The Americans never, never, never do that. They insist always. And there was a dreadful case 30 years ago, I remember it, where... Uh, again, it involved a CIA agent. This time it was a, the husband of a female CIA agent who was accused of some extremely appalling example of sexual abuse mm. uh, of an underage child. Uh, and the guy simply skipped out of the country and they had no way of detaining him. And the Americans refused to lift immunity. Any other country uh, would probably have said, well, this is an egregious crime for which there is no possible political justification and would have allowed the person to face trial. The Americans will not do that. Uh, Isabel, we'll talk more about America's attitude to it shortly, but shortly rather. But is it the case that diplomatic immunity has become just rather lazily applied as a... Well, as just something that covers everything. Famously, uh, as of earlier this year, foreign diplomats had dodged £111 million in unpaid traffic fines uh, here in London alone, uh, the United States being by far the worst offender, 12 million quid worth of those from the Americans. I mean, how many parking spaces can they possibly be occupying? But but anyway, have we has has the world just generally become a bit lazy about policing this? It's pretty it's pretty widely abused. I mean, not only at the parking fine um, the parking fines. There's the problem of London's congestion charge, which uh, American diplomats argued in in a court case was a tax from which they were exempt <laughs> under the Vienna Convention, rather than uh, a fee for a service. Uh, which is what London was arguing. So it, it is pretty widely abused. And although I absolutely support the principle that diplomats ought to be uh, protected from uh, abuse in their host country, I mean, it's, you know, it derives from you know, shooting the messenger who comes to deliver bad news kind of thing. You know, it, you don't really want that kind of thing to happen. Um, but it depends on uh, the, the, all parties behaving decently and responsibly about it. I mean, there are a number, they have a number of options. They can lift diplomatic immunity or, or the host country can, can declare a diplomat persona non grata and kick them out or the diplomat can be recalled. Um, but, but to use it for everyday offences and to extend it as, it as it has been extended to sort of cleaners and drivers and so on is, is I think, pretty much an abuse of the system. And the US is particularly, as Michael says, egregious. I mean, in 97, I think it was, there was a, a case of a Georgian diplomat who, who, very close parallel, caused the death of an American teenager in a driving offence. Mm. He caused a five-car pile-up. Um, and, and the Americans asked Georgia to lift his diplomatic immunity, as Georgia did. And he was then prosecuted under you know, American law. America does not allow that. And, mm. and it creates 
a lot of resentment, as I think we've seen. Well, as you both correctly point out, the, the chances, I think, of the United States agreeing to extradite Anne Sekoulis are somewhere south of zero. President Donald Trump has said, and I quote, we're going to speak to her and see what we can come up with so there can be some healing. Um, it remains to be seen whatever that means. One suspects rather little. But Michael, is this likely to become a thing between the United States and the United Kingdom? Because here in the UK, the tabloids have rather got their teeth into this. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, it's an easy win for them. This is a, a clearly, uh, obviously, uh, bereaved uh, British family. Um, it's, it's an easy swipe at the United States doing as it pleases. But there, there is, there's a very real chance that the British government does end up looking somewhat feeble and ridiculous. Yes, except that I think the government can put enough pressure on the Trump administration to embarrass it into allowing some kind of compromise inquiry in the United States. They will never get the woman forcibly brought back here. That seems to me extremely unlikely. But what they might do is have a quasi-legal investigation if the family can mount a civil challenge. The family is going to America Mm. with the hope of mounting a civil uh, challenge uh, responsibility for a traffic accident in an American court. I, they would find a lawyer who'd find a, a pretext or a way of doing that so that it has uh, jurisdiction in the United States. And in that case, possibly either compel or require or request uh, some kind of cooperation from the woman or her lawyers, which might be enough to satisfy face. Because after all, an inquiry in Britain is never going to do more than find the woman uh, guilty of extremely uh, reckless driving or manslaughter, effectively, uh, which may or may not require a uh, or, or lead to a criminal conviction. But it's not going to bring the kid back, unfortunately. I mean, that that's it. They're, they're seeking they're seeking sort of justice, but they it's limited in what it can do. Okay. well, finally, on today's news panel, this past weekend saw the shattering of one of the most mythologised barriers in sports. The Kenyan runner Eliud Kipchoge became the first person to run a marathon in less than two hours, getting round the course in Vienna in 20 seconds under that benchmark. It is not technically a world record. The time was not achieved under racing conditions and Kipchoge was kept on course by a rotating team of pacemakers. Nevertheless, we might credit Kipchoge the benefit of perspective. If I've done the maths right, he ran 42 lots of 100 metres in an average time of about 17 seconds each, which I'm not sure I could do once. At least I would want an ambulance following me while I attempted it. But it, it is weird to think, Isabel, he could listen to this entire edition of the briefing and he would still only in half a marathon. <laughs> well, I expect he was listening to the briefing. <laughs> well, what else was going to spur him on? Um, what, what is we we did want to ask what was the most impressive thing either of you had accomplished uh, <laughs> oh in two goodness. hours in two hours uh, well, or less? Uh, uh, I mean, most people think that's not impressive at all. You're just talking off the top of their head. But I have written a sixteen hundred word profile of Gaddafi in less than two hours, uh, <laughs> starting from scratch. But I mean, I had to catch the deadline. Uh, but uh, and I've written two editorials in two hours. But then you know, people think well, journalists just, just write the first thing that comes into their head. So that's not very impressive. If you're writing sixteen hundred words. In two hours, you pretty much are writing them. I mean, yes, we, we've yes. all done it. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I was cheating. I actually dictated it, which is, of course, much quicker than actually typing it. I think it's because, harder, though. <laughs> well, yes, you've got to th- you've got to keep thinking. But 
Um, no, I've never climbed a mountain or, you know, run across the country or done anything like that in, in less than, well, a week or so. <laughs> um, it, it, it occurred to me, actually, also by way of perspective, I was working on some Monocle 24 stuff in Geneva uh, late last week, and uh, I'd never been to Geneva before, so in my time when I wasn't working, I walked around Geneva a lot. So it was quite a lot of normal walking, and by chance, I looked at the thing on my phone that tracks these things, and in about three days, I had walked pretty much a marathon distance, about 42 kilometres. Um, and I, yeah, I was kind of feeling it by Sunday, I have to say. So that's that's three days on and off at a brisk walk. Yes. Two I hours. That's the closest I've come. I mean, you know, doing doing occasional very, very long walks is about the closest you've come. But actually, the thought of doing that at faster the walking pace wouldn't make me you know, take to a darkened room with a, probably a large bottle of gin. But, um, <laughs> uh, in terms of, of what I have achieved in under two hours, I, it's it's a bit of a head scratcher, really. I did I did in the course of some mayhem in in Haiti once get in to talk to the Tonton Makut chief, uh, interview him, get out, and manage to file a story in the only working international phone in Port-au-Prince. That was about two hours, well, but I was highly motivated to leave promptly. I can tell you <laughs> that's that's pretty decent going. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote most of the script for today's program in just under two hours, um, which I, I'm not advancing as an, an equivalent accomplishment. Um, Michael, do do accomplishments like this excite you, for example? Oh, the challenge is always yeah. there, yes. The challenge of getting something done quickly. And the challenge, of the, particularly the more difficult the challenge, the more impossible. And usually it's not your own uh, achievement. It's pure luck. I mean, I remember say, 20 years ago, whenever it was, at about uh, almost half past 11 at night or, or towards midnight, I was called by the Times Foreign Desk and they said, we've heard this extraordinary story of the uh, King of Nepal and all his family being slaughtered by uh, their drunken son. You know, everyone is now asleep in Nepal. We can't raise anyone. We've no idea whether this is true. Can you stand it up? And there's me sitting at home in London, us being asked to stand it up. Well, by chance, uh, my wife happened to be a nursery school teacher together with a relative of the <laughs> Prime Minister's family in Dumpal. And so rather late at night, I said, so sorry to bother you. Did you can you tell me, have you heard anything about it? I said, oh, it's terrible. It's dreadful. Yes, I've been on the phone all the time. They've been killed. The son is this. I thought, goodness me, so that was it. And what about the son? And then I thought, well, I think my son was at school with the son. So I called him up and said, do, do you remember Dependris? <laughs> oh, dreadful, fat slob, lazy, completely psychotic. Uh, so there, straight away, within about uh, half an hour, I had the whole story. See, n nobody else, I think, no other news outlet in the world discussing um, Eliud Kipchoge's feat has managed to segue seamlessly uh, in, into, into the, the murder of the Nepalese royal family. <laughs> or indeed the function of Eton in British life. <laughs> <laughs> um, is Isabel, there, has, there have been a few, I, I, I think, frankly, pernickety uh, analyses of this feat saying it doesn't really count because, you know, they, they, they did everything they could to contrive this time. They picked the day with the best weather. They timed his diet to the second they picked the right course. He had the pacemakers. I mean... That 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 is taking nitpicking to a a frankly heroic level, isn't well, it? Well, I agree. I, I just honestly, of course, if you look at elite sport, you know what the people are doing similar, making similar sort of tiny shaves all the time. But still, in the end, the man's feet had to pound the pavement, and uh, and uh, however much stimulus he got from pacemakers, or however ca finely calibrated his diet, I don't think that you or I could have 
got there just with those external aids? Uh, no, I would have... Well, actually, to get anywhere like 42 kilometres in two hours, I would need to be sitting in some sort of powered vehicle uh, driving at approximately 26 kilometres an hour. That, that would do it, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion, thank you both. Uh, in a moment, the UK's new banknote and what's on it. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, summing up the spirit of a nation in the limited space of its banknotes is always a challenge. Monocle's Josh Fennett, presenter of our weekly programme, Monocle on Design, considers the aesthetic values of the UK's new £20 note. In an increasingly tap-and-go era, the presence of cash in its hoary, paper-thin form is still a good way to send a soft power message, it seems. At least that's the idea behind the redesign of the UK's new £20 note to be issued in February 2020, which bears the portrait of romantic painter J.M.W. Turner. Also on the note is a blue and gold foil silhouette of the Margate Lighthouse and David Chipperfield-designed Turner Contemporary Museum, both located on the beautiful Kent coast. The inclusion of architecture is a solid choice. Buildings can become endearing emblems of a nation's ingenuity, think of the Eiffel Tower, ambition, the soaring Burj Dubai, or ethos, think of Lady Liberty. In this vein, the seaside art hub is a fair choice. It plays up the UK's cultural clout and the often forgotten fact that there is life outside of London. This is important at a time when the UK's politics and parliament and the nation's primacy on the world stage are wobbling in all the wrong places, like, you might say, a day tripper on Margate Strand. However, had the Bank of England picked, say, the Shard, Big Ben or the Houses of Parliament, all in various states of disrepair as they are, it would have sent a rather less flattering but perhaps equally apt message about the state of the nation today. That was Josh Fennett, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>